Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Welcome to everybody. We are very excited for uh, our Lenten journey, as we are every year. And we have a, a wonderful guest for that, Father Frank Desiderio. He's in the administration of the community right now, and he has a wonderful background that's much more interesting than administration. <laughs> in fact, I was going to ask him, when you hear this about his background, I was going to ask him how he does it, because generally the creativity and, and the kind of person he is, naturally, it's got to be a stretch to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the the nuts and bolts of administration. And that's that's an admirable thing because a lot of people just say, well, I can't do that. You know, Left so. brain, right brain. Uh, yeah, whatever. He's yeah. he doing it. But uh, he's using the whole brain. That's a, that's a really good uh, catch on that, Dennis, because when everybody gets to hear this particular interview, they'll understand that Father Frank lives and preaches through his art. And yet, He's at the top of the ladder in terms of administration. I think he's also the vice president of the Paulus, so he's right there doing the work of keeping us all running in the right direction. He also makes a real interesting connection between his poetry. He's a poet, mm -hmm. and uh, he makes a uh, recommendation for mysticism, mm -hmm. which is uh, right. you know experiencing God in prayer, not just saying words, but having the relational experience at various levels in various ways. Right. That uh, propel this whole endeavor. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, uh, to do either poetry, to be a poet, or to be a mystic, one of the things you have to have to do that in your personality is to really be able to pay attention to what's happening, especially in that moment. Right. And Father Frank, he must have that gift to be doing both those things. <laughs> it's interesting you say that. From my perspective, you will both remember a couple of years ago, we had the great, wonderful opportunity to uh, go up to the Paulist uh, location up at, on Lake George. A beautiful time, yeah. Spend some time with uh, us and, and Father Frank DeCiano. And Father DeCiderio, one, uh, one of his things is that he, I think, is kind of runs. Uh, He's the, the director. House. Director up at Lake George. Thank you. And I just... I just had these memories when he was talking of being around him up there and what a gracious host he was, but how much, and I think it's well known how much he loves the lake and the property up there, which is absolutely stunningly beautiful. But I got a sense of such an, a strong sense of peace. You know, it's easy to confuse whether that peace was coming from the, the serenity and the beauty around us or coming from Father Frank, who personalized the serenity mm -hmm. i mean he just he has that way about him absolutely really good yeah well it's kind of nice to be able to take in the uh the power of of nature up in uh, lake george rather than on 59th street so there's a a different uh, in new york yeah <laughs> yeah it's, well central park is right nearby so this is true but they got some nature over a little there. noisy there yeah. it depends on how you look at it i mean i do love the humanity walking up and down those streets and uh no oh, the humanity remember tom uh, not that humanity <laughs> thomas merton had his uh right had his epiphany uh, in the middle of uh louisville louisville kentucky right and so i think this is a really nice way to try to uh, understand that Jesus walks with us through this life. 
especially some of uh, Father Frank's recommendations on healing and forgiveness and how to uh, work ourselves out of a grudge mindset. Yeah, Tom, you took him uh, took him on a great journey through uh, forgiveness. Um, uh, he took us on a great journey through forgiveness. And that awaits our, our listeners here for Lent. That's right. So let's uh, begin the journey, shall we? Okay. So today our guest on Deacon's Pod is Paulist Father Frank Desiderio. Father Frank is the Vice President of the Paulist Fathers. He also serves as Director of St. Mary's at the Lake, a summer retreat facility for the Paulist at Lake George, New York. Father Frank conducts workshops, days of recollection, and parish missions centered around forgiveness and life and ministry of Pope Francis. Father Frank has served in many capacities over the years, Director of the Paulist Associates, Director of the Paulist Center in Boston, President of the Paulist Productions, and a Communities Director of Formation. Father Desiderio's documentary, The Big Question, a film about forgiveness in 2009, won Best Documentary at the Breckenridge Film Festival and Santa Fe Metaphysical Film Festival. After working on this film, he began his current career of forgiveness and reconciliation. Father Frank is the author of the Paulist Press book, can you let go of a grudge? Welcome, Father Frank, to Deacon's Pod. I forgot some of that actually happened, so thanks for the reminder. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling inadequate, so thanks for that. <laughs> you Well, you did leave out all-around good guy, but... Indeed. No, oh, yes. thank you. Yeah, that'll become good. apparent as we go uh, along. The oxygen level, like I said, was down. Yeah. So, Father Frank, over your 41 years, it's, it's just so impressive. And so we'd like to look, maybe we start... As the saying goes, in the beginning, how did you end up in the Paulist Fathers with that remarkable career that unwinded that I thought maybe you'd be coming out of Hollywood with that kind of uh, interest in, uh, in the theater and in poetry? The Paulist Fathers, it's quite a, a beautiful ministry you, you found yourself in. How did you get there? Uh, the phone book. I, was, <laughs> I, was, I love this story. Uh, <laughs> I was interested in, well, I graduated college and I had been... Over the years, I had thought about becoming a priest. And finally, one day, I surrendered to the idea. And once I surrendered to the idea, I, I just found myself at peace. And so I thought, okay, well, that, that's the call. That's God's open door. Go where the peace is. And I said, well, how do you go about becoming a priest? So I looked in the phone book. And the only listing under Catholic priests in the yellow pages of Washington, D.C., where I live, was for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men, which is a you know organization of religious orders. And so I got into my Oldsmobile, and I drove down to Massachusetts Avenue, and I rang the doorbell. Didn't call. The secretary didn't know what to do with me. There was one priest there. She ushered me into his office, and I said, I want to become a priest. <laughs> he looked kind of befuddled. And so he started going through all the different religious orders, Augustinians, Benedictines, Capuchins, Dominicans. And then he finally said, this isn't going to get us anywhere. Tell me what you're interested in. I said, well, I'm interested in like radio and television and publishing. And so, oh, you've got to talk to the Paul's fathers. So I got back in my Oldsmobile. I drove to St. Paul's College in Northeast Washington. I rang the doorbell. It was lunchtime. 
And one of the priests answered the door. I told them I was interested in becoming a priest. I said, come on in for lunch. The students were all away. It was summer. There were three priests sitting there. One of, I asked them about themselves, and one of them had a law degree from Fordham and a journalism degree from Columbia. The other one was a PhD in philosophy, and the other one was studying to get an advanced degree in canon law. And I thought to myself, these guys are never going to take me. I'm not smart enough. But they said, come back for mass and dinner when the students are here. So I, that started the relationship. And a year later, I joined the Paul Scholars. Mm, indeed, indeed. Yeah, and if you went alphabetically, just, I, it would have taken quite a while to get yeah. the letter free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I just get stuck with those Jesuits? <laughs> yeah. What was what was the, the priest who was talking to you? What order was he? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't remember anything about him, his name. or that was But the he didn't only try to I scoop ever... you up. He really did a good job by by focusing on you, yeah. not saying, oh, here's one for us. He's at my yeah, door. Right. What, right. When you, you met the pause, I've heard you tell your story in other places. What is it that actually sold you on the Paulus? I mean, you had the interest, you had lunch. When did you, what made you say, yeah, I'm going to put my nickel down here? You know, I think part of it was my, one of my paradigms for life is a camping trip. You just kind of, you're hiking, you're traveling light, you're moving forward. Another way of saying that it's a pilgrimage. And the Paulists were, are kind of a peripatetic order. We, we move around a lot in terms of missionary work. So while, even if I, I lived in California for 20 years, but I did a lot of different things, and now I live in New York, and during Lent, I'll be going to Charleston, South Carolina to do a parish mission. And I think it was that mission focus, that going to the other guy's turf rather than staying in your own place. I just always thought about, I think the image I had growing up a priest is that they live in community and they do some kind of missionary work. I just never thought of myself as a diocesan priest. Hmm. Just to go back a step, maybe you could talk about was you had an experience, I believe it was in high school, on an echo retreat that was That's pivotal right. to your discernment. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that was coming to adult faith and recognizing that faith is about, first of all, relationship with God and Jesus Christ about living in a loving community, and about sharing joy with other people. That became my concept through the retreat experience. That was the kind of epiphany about what religion and faith is about, as opposed to just following the rules and getting your ticket stamped to go to heaven. Mm -hmm. I asked that because I had the exact same experience in high school on an echo retreat, which is why I'm mm -hmm. talking to you today. That's what I heard that. <laughs> When you told that story earlier, I said, oh, isn't that interesting? That's where the nickel dropped yeah. for me. So I thought that yeah. was great, great retreat. So, Father Frank, you mentioned that you're basically a missionary. You, you don't have a parish. Have you ever, have you ever had a parish? Or I was director of the Polo Center in Boston, okay. which yeah. is kind of a down, downtown parish <laughs> of sorts. Uh, and, and I was the, director of UCLA, which was a campus ministry. I see. And that's where the Paulists are located, a lot of campus ministry work still today, right? Yeah, we still yeah. do campus ministry, yeah. And, yeah. and I still have a heart for it. 
a lot of my friends are people who are now in their 50s who I met when they were 18, 19, and 20 yeah. to go as undergrads. Yeah, you kept that relationship. So given your background, it's safe to say that you reach most of your people beyond the pews. They're not in a church or a parish environment through all of your media. Talk about that. That's part of the mission of the pause, to, to reach those people who are on the fringe, who have lost maybe their way in, in the church and are, are looking for something. How, how do you get, what's your sense of the spirituality that you're bringing to them, to people on the outside through your media? Well, I actually, when we were talking about that, the, the first thing that flashed in my, man, my mind was when I worked in Hollywood. Because I was working in production and I was doing documentaries and things for television. And, and I was working with television writers through the Humanity Test Prize. And most of the people that I dealt with, I interacted with on a day-to-day -day basis were not necessarily Catholic. If they were, they weren't probably not practicing Catholics. So I tried to bring to them a sense that Catholicism, first of all, is willing to dialogue with people in the culture and not just be its own enclave. That the, the whole point, I think, of missionary work is you carry the, the vision of the kingdom of God into the secular realm and you try and remake society to look more like the reign of God. But that's kind of on a social level. But just on a personal level, I think what I tried to convey was the joy of religious experience. In other words, the joy of living in relationship with God and the peace that comes from that. Because I think a lot of people who don't have a spirituality, that's one of the most attractive things, is that you can kind of Find a place to live at peace with yourself because you're, you're living in a relationship with God and the joy that comes from that. And joy might not be the right word. It's more of a mm. deeper serenity. As Pope Francis says, it's the joy of the gospel is not a hilarity. It's more of a, a serenity. And deep-seated peace. I found it very interesting, again, with the, the huge amount of work you did on forgiveness based on the film. Tell us about that. What brought you into that for forgiveness chapter and, and doing a film? It was interesting. This probably goes back to about 2004. I was having a conversation. I think I was went to lunch with this priest who had a healing ministry. He would pray for people for their mental health, spiritual health, physical health. And he was very successful. And I said to him, how come some people you pray for doesn't have an effect? How come they don't get better? And he says, the biggest block to healing is a lack of forgiveness. And that opened my eyes. And I thought, wow, okay. So then I was developing documentaries for cable television. And so I needed something that was religious, would check off the faith-based component, but also would be entertaining and popular in order to sell it to A&E, which is eventually who did it. So I came up with this idea of investigating the value of forgiveness, the, the, the emotional, physical, spiritual benefits of forgiveness. And so I, as I did all that research in developing the documentary, I was also asking very religious questions 
but I was asking them to psychologists and neurobiologists and brain researchers. And so anyway, we did the we did this documentary on forgiveness. And then based on the research, I wrote a book and and then I started doing parish missions on it. But you know, like when we showed the film, I took the film to some film festivals and People would come up to me afterwards with their own stories. This one guy, one guy came up to me and said, I, I went to Vietnam and I met the North Vietnamese officer who was my opposite number at a battle. And we forgave each other. That's dramatic, but sure, more often sure. than not, it would be something like, my brother stole the money from my father's will and I never got any of it, but, you know, I have to let it go because it's just eating at me. And thank you for doing the retreat and showing me how I can do that. So there's more things like that. Yeah. I spent some time as a hospice chaplain, and it was pretty a sad state of affairs to go into someone who's passing away as, as moments to live and be with some of the relatives and ask, well, is there anybody who's not here or any? And, and oh, yeah, well, there was this family out. A cider that they haven't been in touch with for years, a son, a daughter. And even several times that we were able to pick up the phone and make a call on there. And, and you could say, see that sense of, of ease coming in that it's unfinished business, even though, you know, mm-hmm. we might feel justified in our anger and that we have reason uh, to hold a, hold a grudge. But the human spirit wants that forgiveness, I think. It's, it's part of our, our need to, to, to reconcile before we pass on. That's yeah, an mm-hmm. obstacle. And it's for every religion. It's for, you know, which, it's not just our religion. It's, it's, I think every religion in the world calls us to a forgiveness of, of uh, other people. Father, the Paulists have a new initiative after their last assembly a couple months ago on polarization in this country, which I think is tremendously Paulist between the fact that reconciliation is one of the Paulist focus, and of course, the other one is uh, being good Americans as, a, as an American religious community. And so reading the signs of the time and recognizing what we all see, that this country is just split. It's, you, you watch cable news, and I'm reminded of, of antebellum literature from before the Civil War, what writings of the 1850s, just before the country blew up, and it's like, this sounds real familiar. But anyway... I was wondering if your work in forgiveness has has helped you with this new initiative, or it might be premature, but it would seem like it was a fit. It is, it is a fit. I, th- I think the Paulists are at the beginning of trying to figure out how to develop some sort of process or materials or ways of working with people that can lessen the divisions in our country and, and help people come together and and even if it's just back to a, a level of civil discourse. But I think one of the things that I think is really important is people need to be able to look at each other without demonizing the other. So it used to be, I think I'm right, I think you're wrong, let's negotiate. Now it's, I'm right, you're evil, and end of story. So how do we get back to that really loving your neighbor as yourself so we don't demonize each other? And one of the steps in forgiving somebody is telling your story differently, seeing if you can tell your story from the other person's point of view. 
And I think if you're able to do that, then you start to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And once you do that, it's, it gets to, it's more and more difficult to demonize them. So it's, can you tell, can you tell the story differently? Because we get into these mental ruts where we, this is the way it is and there can be no other way to think about it. Well, that used to be the kind of thing you heard when we were all younger in the religious realm, that that was the ultimate thing and my group's going to heaven and sorry for mm -hmm. your problems, you're not, and all that. And as bad as that was, and as much progress as we've made in overcoming it, which is certainly a, a, a great thing, I wonder if, because we no longer have that realm of ultimate concern as widely spread as it was before, if that wasn't protecting politics, that you may be on this side of this issue, I may be on that side, but we can be civil to each other because it's not ultimate. And I think mm -hmm. there's been a shift in society where a lot of people's ultimate meaning on both sides of the spectrum, at least 20% of both sides, this is it. And since there's no God, I can't rest. I have to make my agenda happen. I cannot rely on anything else, on the secularity. And so therefore it becomes all-out war, your side is evil, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if maybe the decrease in the religious practice is exacerbating this problem in our politics. I don't know what you think. Well, it's certainly a good possibility because I think people who take their religion seriously, just like we were talking about forgiveness, all religions do have some teaching, if not about forgiveness, then about compassion. And I think the same thing would be true all religions, even if you disagree or think the other person is going to go to hell, that doesn't mean that you stop loving them on some level, at least extending charity towards them. So as Pope Francis has said, lack of charity is also a sin. <laughs> yeah, that was real reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to go to from Connecticut down to Virginia, and along the way would stop in Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the tragedies that happened, I think, 2012 or so, was a, a shooting in the school by one of the Amish. And it was oh, amazing. Yeah, nickel, nickel mines. Nickel mines, yeah. Yeah, we told that story in the movie I worked on. Ah, indeed. Well, we had gone and we used to stay at a place two miles up the road, so it was of interest to us. But I think the book that came out after that was Amazing Grace, and it talked mm -hmm. about the Amish and how they prepared for the Eucharist that they received every twice a year, the, the communion was prepped by four or five weeks of this teaching on forgiveness. And it was mm -hmm. essential. That whole, the connection of you can't be forgiven unless you forgive others. Now mm -hmm. it's core to our, our father, but you know, it's, it just doesn't seem to find root in, in our transformation to, to get that what? and to work yeah. on that. One of the things that the researchers found is that the people who are most likely to forgive are people who grow up in a culture where forgiveness is held as a value and is practiced. And that's what the Amish do. Sure. They, they hold it as a value, but they also practice it on a regular basis. And so if you grow up in that culture, then it's more likely that you're going to move to a place of forgiveness rather than a place of resentment and holding a grudge. If you grow up in a culture where the value is my lawyer can beat up your lawyer, 
then you're not going to go to that place. You're going to call your lawyer. That's a pitch for Drew. Drew, come on in. Well, I'm just reminded <laughs> we had an earlier podcast about a year ago, Father, where we featured Judge Esther Salas, whose son was murdered by mm-hmm. somebody who was actually trying to kill her. And her right. I remember the story it was in Virginia, right? Uh, here in New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. It was here in New Jersey. And, and our whole interview with Judge Salas was all about the fact that within a couple of weeks, she and her husband, who was still lying in a hospital bed, still subject to several surgeries to save his life, decided, with the help of a priest, to forgive the shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, and they made a public statement about it, and she has been preaching forgiveness ever since. And it's just it's a remarkable story that she tells, and I think my colleagues here will agree that she's very sincere in her and how much she's forgiven. But she talks about the benefits of forgiveness and what it's brought to her life and the peace that it's brought. So it's just such a powerful thing. And I think it's so important, your history with this. And I agree with Dennis. It just seems to, and you, Father, that it just seems to be a great fit to now discuss polarization and try to smooth off the rough edges in this world that we live in. One of the benefits, I think, what what's the saying that says uh, that uh, failing to forgive is like uh, drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Like, mm-hmm. It's for our own benefit. Yeah, yeah, we have to find that peace. And it's probably the hardest work you have to do, if, depending on the severity of the, the rejection and hurt and pain. These of the mm-hmm. church, what we've gone through for these last years, it's, it's, it's difficult work. We'll work. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons people don't want to do it is because they feel like that there's really two strong Catholic values here, mercy, which counsels you to forgiveness, and justice, which counsels you to do what's fair and right. And people feel like if they forgive, they're violating justice. Mm. But in fact, these two things, they coexist in the same place. You can be, the the way I say it, is if the just thing to do is to sue somebody, go ahead and sue them. Just don't harden your heart against them. So in other words, how do you do it with charity? How do you do it with love? How do you do it praying for the other person so you don't poison yourself with resentment? Kind of the other quote besides the one you use comes from Mark Twain, which is, you know, resentment is the acid that eats away at the container that holds it. So forgiveness is really about freeing myself from resentment so that I don't hurt myself as well as it's, it's not so much about letting the other person off the hook. Right. Yeah. 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 And Martin Luther King was a great exemplar of both of those. You know, he Mm -hmm. said, I will never allow a man to bring me so low as to make me hate him. And yet, Mm no one can say that King wasn't pushing for justice. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, they're not mutually exclusive. He, theirs where it was being not only held, but practiced the exact thing you're talking about of, oh, I'm going to hold you accountable, but I'm not going to hate you. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to not mm-hmm. forgive you. We're not going to move on. I'm not going to demonize you. So mm-hmm. that's a great resource, the civil rights movement. I think I had a, I had a judge in, on my board of directors in Connecticut, and he would be talking about how he reconciles cases, and, and he says that when he gets involved in situations, he remembers that, yeah, you've got to serve the justice aspect, but you never take the guy's last dollar, that, that, that he has to bring mm-hmm. that element of fairness into it. And again, I thought that was pretty, 
interesting coming out of the, the legal side that you actually have jurisprudence that says, yeah, even though you could go the whole distance, be fair. I, from, from, I feel from, a lawyer joke coming on. Well, no, no joke, no joke, from, no, no joke. From a from a judicial perspective, mercy is the word that we use, and um, it's something that I always prayed for before I went out on the bench to be able to remember mercy and to remember that the person I'm looking at out there is actually a real person that God loves. And in fact, I try to remember that every time. Sometimes it was not so easy, depending on the crimes that they were alleged of having committed. Mercy, forgiveness, justice, it, it's all tied together. And, and again, back to the secular realm, if you don't have that foundation in your own viewpoint, your own worldview, then oh, uh, you could get lopsided. You could go more after the justice side and bang the gavel or, and lose that compassion and fairness side, I think. Maybe that's some of our issues going on in society now, the civil life we have. One of the things that took me by surprise, Father Frank, is your poetry. I, uh, I came took across me your... by surprise, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the epiphany poem that you did, that was quite a uh, uh, illuminating little work uh, that gives you a, a high mark in the, in the world of poetry. Can you explain how your poetry and preaching come together? Because I know that you use your poetry as part of your preaching. Yeah, it, well, I think both the priesthood and being a poet were vocations that found me. You know, I didn't start out wanting to be a poet. That's what I mean. I was, I was surprised. When I was in college, I thought I would be a writer, but I wanted to write like murder mysteries. I didn't want to write poetry. I thought poetry was something that was done by wimps. So I really didn't want to, I didn't want to be a poet. And then early in my priesthood, I decided I couldn't, I, I could not send out Christmas cards. Christmas was just too busy a time for priests to try and do Christmas cards. So I would do an Easter card instead. And I thought, and it's theologically more significant because without Easter, kind of Christmas is meaningless. So I would celebrate Easter by sending out an Easter card. And I wrote a poem to create an Easter card with. And then after I'd done that for a few years, I thought to myself, I could, I don't have to just write one poem a year. And it, it kind of sought me out. It's like I, I wake up with lines in my head or things come to me. I always carry a notebook and because a line might come to me. And my, it's like my subconscious is always working on the poem. So that's why I mean it, it, it's more of a vocation that I said yes to rather than something I chose. It's like, this is what I want to do. So anyway, some of the things that connect poetry and preaching are in preaching, you want to use beautiful language to express meaningful thoughts and use the right word and use concise language. Again, Pope Francis, keep to attendment and homily. And I found that there was a lot of parallels. If I was writing good, when I was writing a good homily, it was I was using poetic principles, finding the right, using beautiful language, using alliteration, putting in the occasional internal rhyme. And if I wrote a really good line in a homily, I would like pluck it out and hold it and maybe use it in a poem somewhere. Or if I wanted to sum up what I had said in the homily, I might put it in a poetic form and use that poem to end the homily. So I do think there's a, there's a lot of 
parallels in terms of what poets and what preachers do. And so I try to use the the skill of poetry to write a good homily. And the thing is, I I even though I have a written text, I very rarely use it. Because my philosophy is if I don't remember what I want to say, <laughs> happen I expect you to remember. <laughs> and if it doesn't come out like a story, then you're not going to listen to me anyway. Yeah. So, so I've got to be able to stand up and tell a story. So you use poetry as a remote preparation for preaching, not approximate preparation, or or is it just? Yeah, it's more. It's more kind of the two things just go hand in hand. As I'm writing the homily, something may occur to me that I want to put into a poem. But then the big project that came along was I decided I would write a poem as a reflection on the Sunday readings for the whole three-year cycle of the Catholic lectionary. So my social media pages, Father Frank's Poetry, I'm now in my sixth year. So I went through cycles A, B, and C. So basically wrote 52 poems for year A, 52 for year B, 52 for year C. And now I'm going back and refining those and each coming back to that poem, rewriting it, hoping to make it better. And then I, I make a little video and I post the video on Saturdays with the hope that people will use it as a way to reflect on the readings on Sundays. And so I'm in my sixth year and then that's going to end. And then I'll just take those 150 some poems and see if I can put them together in a book. But then they'll, hopefully they'll live on the YouTube channel for a while to come. And I have had priests write me and say, do I have permission to use this poem as part of my homily on Sunday? And I, I always write them back and say, yeah, that's what they're there for. I just had occasion, it was in Things to Know, I think that's the name of the, uh, the email that goes out, and you were featured in, in a YouTube talk you gave back in 2020 about St. Paul of the shipwreck. And I watched, mm. that. I watched that again. And what you just said really, really resonates with me in terms of making it a story. You just took the story straight out of the Acts of the Apostles, but you retold it. And I'd say with some poetry in there, some poetic language, and it was just a fascinating uh, story. I'm probably going to try to use it somewhere in my parish at some point in time, if, you, if it's okay to, to replay that without permission or with permission. That's a great example, I think, of it wasn't really a homily. It was more, maybe it was a homily, but it was a fantastic telling of St. Paul and his and some of his travails. Well, and, and you have to remember the context was this was the first year of COVID. Right. And everybody felt like their life was a shipwreck. Right. And so, you know, I looked around for the story that how do we make sense of what's happened to us in this pandemic? And it's, well, let's look at St. Paul and the shipwreck. Our lives are shipwrecked and what happened to him and what can happen to us, because it's ultimately a story of hope. It's a way that God brought the gospel to people. You also wrote the uh, Paulist prayer book, did you not? I Yeah, I edited the, the Paulist Prayer Book back in the winter of 1999-2000, and 
I took a sabbatical. I was transitioning from being director of formation in Washington to working at Polish Productions and ultimately taking over Polish Productions from Father Bud Kaiser. So in that transition period, I asked for a, a, a semester sabbatical because I recognized that two things were going on at the time. We were starting the Paulist Associates, and so we needed a, a, a tool for spirituality, which is the way I thought of the prayer book, helping to pass along Paulist spirituality. And so I wanted to write it for our associates, and I wanted to write it for our students, so that they too would have a tool to help them express, learn, and pray in, in a kind of a Paulist way. Can you tell so the listeners I, uh, what an associate is? Yeah, a Paulist associate is a layperson that's usually affiliated with one of our Paulist parishes or campus ministries who go through a formation process, and then they live out the Paulist charism, Paulist spirituality, Paulist mission in their own lives. They take an annual promise to live according to the Paulist spirituality, Paulist charism. And they meet monthly as a group to pray together and to support each other in carrying out their form of Paul's mission. Father Frank, there's a lot of folks that might hear this out there, and we've talked about forgiveness. And I'm just wondering if, since you have authored a book, Can You Let Go of a Grudge, can you explain some of the ways that somebody out there who's dealing with something that is uh, keeping them bound up in resentment, how they might let go? Well, the phrase let go is intentional because I, I have five steps that are outlined in the book. L-E-T-G-O. Um. L is look deeply at what went wrong. Kind of really examine the, the hurt, how it happened, your part in it, their part in it. And then the second E is empathy. Do you have any empathy for the other person? Can you at least summons up the smallest sense of sympathy? You don't have to necessarily love them right off the bat, but can you see where they're coming from? Or can you understand them? Maybe your sense of empathy is just, that person's a psychopath and thank God I'm not them. <laughs> Maybe that's where you start with empathy, but is there, but psychologists say, unless you have some empathy for the other person, you really can't forgive. So L, look deeply what went wrong. E, empathy for the other is key. T, tell the story differently. You have a story in your head about this hurt. Is there another way to tell that story? And ultimately, I want you to get to the place where you tell the story as so-and-so hurt me to so-and-so hurt me, and I've forgiven them. Because when you can do that, you go from being a victim to being a victor over your own hurt. So L-E-T, tell the story differently. G, give the gift of forgiveness. Recognize that forgiveness is a gift. The other person may not deserve it, and that's why it's a gift. But you choose to extend this gift, which means that you choose to emotionally cancel the debt that they owe you. You don't hold on and waiting for something from them. 
L-E-T-G, give the gift of forgiveness. Oh, one day at a time, keep forgiveness strong. It's hard to always feel forgiving. And so when you find yourself slipping back into feelings of anger, hurt, or resentment, to reassert the decision you made that you're going to forgive the person and let go of whatever emotional debt that you feel that they owe you. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some, it does. some it heavy does. work. Yeah. But at least it's a process, which is always good to have a process to have ways to pick it apart, especially that empathy part. I think that's mm-hmm. often missed on that. We've got a question that says, suppose we uh, get a friend of ours tells us that they're about to leave the church. What, what information might you have to give them a sign of hope? What, what do we have going for us that seems to be totally missed in, in our contemporary society today, the benefits that we have as a, a faith-filled community of believers? I think one of the things that's really lost in conversation today is mysticism. Prayer that allows you to experience something of the transcendence of God, Mm. and that that brings us to a place of awe. It brings us to a place of belonging. We have this sense that we belong to God, something beyond ourselves. Yeah, it brings us to a sense of gratitude. It brings us to a sense of being loved brings us to a sense of joy, that inner peace that I talked about at the beginning of our conversation. There's a very rich tradition of mysticism in the Catholic Church, but most people, they may have it. They may have it because they experienced it in the Eucharist. They may have it because they've experienced it in prayer or adoration. They may have it because they've they've had an epiphany moment either in church or outside of church. I mean, I think a lot of people have had what I would call mystical experiences, a sense of what is beyond themselves, a sense of moving past where their skin ends into something (laughs) deeper. And I think that's one of the great benefits of sticking with religion and exploring that side of religion. I think what happens is people either get bored or they get mad or things seem irrelevant. But if you're really living the mystical life, you don't get bored and it's very relevant. There's nothing to disagree with. Like people leave the church because they disagree with the church's teaching on fill in the blank. But if you're actually practicing mysticism, that kind of deep prayer, spirituality, awareness, this brings us back to poetry. One of the jobs of a poet is to be aware of the present moment, to pay attention to what's going on in this hot moment and pay attention to details. Mysticism is paying attention to being aware of the presence of God and then practicing that presence of God. So. That's what I would, I would talk to people about the mystical side of the church. Beautiful. Again, that whole awareness, that whole awareness side, that, that brings us into the mystery. What's going mm-hmm. on with the initiative for Hecker's spirituality? I'm waiting for that, because I think that that, in my life, has been one of the keys to what you were talking about, finding 
that mysticism and Hecker is just so accessible in my experience mm-hmm. of all the various spiritualities. He gives so much freedom and respect for the individual in dealing with the Holy Spirit that it's like, this is a wide, wide door that is very easy mm-hmm. for people to approach. Where is that going at this point? Because that also was in the assembly that you were going to... Well, the, the next thing we're going to do is the weekend when we do our ordinations in May, we're going to do a symposium, which I, I think will be live streams. And we're going to talk about what does Isaac Hecker, the founder of the Paulist Fathers, have to say to us today in an age of polarization? Because remember, Hecker lived during the Civil War which was kind of the the worst kind of polarization to hit the United States. So is there anything that we can learn from him? And I think that's going to be, that'll be the next next big thing that we do. Are you working on any special project now, anything big that we could look forward to? Well, I'm one of the people that is trying to pull together the Paulist ministry of trying to, lessen polarization in the church and in society. Sure. So we're entering into kind of a study period where we look at, well, what are the experts saying? Who are the people we can partner with? What are pastoral approaches we can use? What are materials we can develop for parishes? What's a retreat that we can offer? Is there a movie we can make? So we're just beginning that process, and and I'm part of that team that's working on that. Well, that's really something to look forward to, indeed. Very good. Thank yeah, you so thank much, you so much. Really, that was great. what a beautiful thing. Yeah, thanks Make for all your insight. this afternoon. Keep up the good work. Mm, bye-bye. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacons, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.